John chapter 19, verses 23 through 30. We come to this portion of Scripture near the end of the Gospel as we have read of Jesus' betrayal and his trial. And we saw how Pilate presented to the Jews their king, their Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ, and yet he was condemned to be crucified, though he was innocent. And yet through it all, through it all, uh, his identity was proclaimed, even posted on the cross above him, that this was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so he was crucified, he was nailed to the cross, but he did not die right away. And in this portion of scripture, we we hear of Jesus on the cross, uh, being crucified, and then dying. So let's read verses 23 through 30. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they took a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Oh God, we are thankful for receiving the good news of Jesus Christ, which has been written for our instruction, for our faith to cling to, and to guide us in this life, and even into the next. We pray that you would Strengthen us to open our minds to receive your word and your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we find that Jesus completed the work that he came to do by laying down his life on the cross, giving up his life on the cross. Jesus secured our salvation by his death. It is finished. It is complete. We'll come to that particular phrase at the end, but everything is kind of leading up to that point. As he is fulfilling scripture, as he is suffering for our salvation, as he is finishing that work and seeing then that it has been completed, that it has been finished, he says that and dies. We can divide this up into four portions, as I will do today. First, there is the dividing of the garments. Then there is his 
uh, words to his mother and to the beloved disciple. Then there is his saying, I thirst. And then his last words recorded here, it is finished. So first, verses 23 through 24, they divided his garments and cast lots. There were four soldiers. This was a group of four soldiers that were crucifying Jesus and the two other uh, who were there, the the criminals that were crucified uh, on either side of him. And it was common practice for the soldiers to divide up uh, the belongings among themselves of the people that they were crucifying. And Jesus's garments were divided equally among the four. His, he, he would have had a cloak that he wore like this on the outside, except it would have reached down further. And that was divided into four portions equally. But his, his shirt, which would have been a, uh, his tunic, reaching down to the knee length, uh, but the shirt underneath it was uh, not so easily divided. It was seamless. It was woven from one piece, and so it would have destroyed it if they were going to rip it apart to try to divide it up among the four. And so instead of dividing it up, they cast lots, kind of like rolling dice today. They would draw straws, see who would be the one who would get the tunic. Now, of all the things to pay attention to, In the crucifixion of Jesus, why does John spend two verses, at least, on the soldiers uh, dividing and casting lots over the clothes of Jesus? What's the importance of this? I think the most important thing is that this, quite unintentionally on the soldier's part, fulfilled scripture. And John quotes Psalm 23 uh, to make this plain that scripture was being fulfilled. Uh, Psalm 22. Let me read uh, that again with the verse or two before it. See how this perfectly describes the crucifixion. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Not only did they divide clothing, they also cast lots for that other piece of clothing they weren't able to divide up. Perfectly prophesied, foretold, described. Jesus' suffering had not taken God unaware, had not taken Jesus unaware. He had gone to this death purposefully, and it had been prophesied and foretold centuries previous. David wrote these words a thousand years prior. His death was not accidental, but prophesied and purposeful in such detail. That this psalm was being fulfilled was significant because, especially of because where it ends, uh, that it ends with deliverance and with worship and salvation and the nations coming to the Lord. And this would be the fruit of the work of Jesus. This psalm shows up several places in the crucifixion accounts of Christ in the Gospels. The opening words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are recorded by the other gospel writers that Jesus said that while he was on the cross experiencing this great weight of of suffering. And then when he rose from the dead, he echoed the words of the psalm again. Tell of my name and tell, tell this to my brothers, talking of his disciples as his brothers, as 
even as the psalmist would say, I will tell of your name to my brothers, uh, as they would gather together and hear the good news of his resurrection. So scripture was being fulfilled. And then we might also notice the fact that his clothings were being divided among the soldiers also meant that Jesus did not have them. They had been stripped from him. Another point of importance is that Jesus was stripped of everything so that we might be clothed with his righteousness and glory. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus was exposed to shame so that our shame might be covered. That Jesus was being uh, shamed and humiliated, stripped of every belonging, and left naked on the cross, held to mockery and shame before the crowds. But this was what we deserved, uh, that we knew our nakedness when we first sinned against God and hid in shame for the sin that we had done. But Jesus, who had done no sin, suffered for our sake, so that we might be clothed with righteousness and glory and be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. We might be, as it were, clothed in white robes. And Jesus went through this for our sake. Well, the next thing that happens is as the soldiers are, are casting lots near the cross, there is a group of women. There is a group of, I believe, four women. There's a little ambiguity whether it's three or four that are being described here, whether Mary's sister was also named Mary, uh, the wife of Cle- Cle- Cleopas, uh, as some people interpret. I think it's more likely that four people are being described, not only because it would be odd for Mary's sister to be Mary, it would have to be like a sister-in-law or something of that. You don't name two daughters both with the same name. But also, it just seems to flow better that way, that you have Mary, Mary's sister, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, these women are here. Perhaps there were others if you compare the other gospel accounts, it's a little unclear how many women are there, how much they overlap and are described differently. Uh, from the other gospels, we know that the mother of the sons of Zebedee was there. So John, the writer of this gospel, his mother was there. Was his mother the wife of Ma- or the sister of Mary? It's possible that John and James were Jesus's cousins. Uh, we don't know that for sure, though. But we do know that Mary's sister was there, and we do know that John's mother was there, his literal earthly mother. Imagine what it would have been like to be Mary's sister, to have seen what her sister had gone through and bearing this child, and then for her nephew Jesus to have this ministry, and then to follow him, and then go all the way to the cross. We don't think about much about Mary's sister, but she's mentioned here as well at the cross. Or imagine James and John's mother. She had asked that her sons would sit on Christ's right hand and left. Now she saw two other people at Christ's right hand and left. Uh, She perhaps understood better uh, what Christ was doing and the nature of his humility that he had come to suffer for his people. All of these women had incredible lives, and here they were watching the crucifixion of Jesus. This was doubtless especially hard for Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Simeon had told her long before that a sword would pierce through her heart also. Earlier, she had wanted Jesus to supply the wine for the wedding in Cana. At that time, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. But now his hour had come. He was doing his father's will. He was fulfilling the task for which he had been born, for which he had been born of Mary. He was doing this as he was suffering on the cross before her. Now, it's common for Roman Catholics today to interpret this text as Jesus giving his mother to be the mother of all his disciples. And as John Pope John Paul II said, that we should therefore trustingly commend ourselves to her maternal love. Well, that's not the point of this text. Um, this reads much into the text that is not there, especially since John himself comments on the results of, of Jesus' words. What's the effect of Jesus saying, Mary, behold your son, and turning to John and saying, behold your mother. The result was that John took Mary to his own house. John took care of Mary. Mary was being entrusted to John's care rather than John being entrusted to Mary's care. Uh, She was likely a widow at this point. Joseph doesn't seem to have been uh, around, had probably died at this point. And Jesus is providing for his mother, as a dutiful son would do, and uh, entrusts her to John's care. If you look even at the early church fathers, they follow the same Protestant interpretation. They make no mention of of entrusting ourselves to Mary as our mother, but rather speak of how Jesus was teaching us to honor our mothers and fathers. Let me quote from a few of them, not only because they exposit it well, but just to drive home the point that we're with the church fathers on this one. Augustine said, The good teacher does what he thereby reminds us ought to be done, and by his own example instructed his disciples that care for their parents ought to be a matter of concern to pious children. Or Chrysostom But he on the cross committed his mother to the disciple, teaching us even to our last breath to show every care for our parents. He goes on to say that Christ did this to teach us to pay more than ordinary respect to our mothers. For as when parents oppose us on spiritual matters, we must not even own them, so that when they do not hinder us, we ought to pay them all becoming respect and prefer them before others, because they begat us, because they bred us up, because they bear for us 10,000 terrible things. Or another early church father, Cyril, said this. First, we reply, you know, why did Jesus say this? He wished to confirm the command on which the law lays so much stress. For what saith the Mosaic ordinance? Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee. And he goes on to say, and how could we learn that we ought not to lightly regard love towards them, even when we are overwhelmed by a flood of intolerable calamities, save by the example of Christ, first of all, and through him. For best of all, surely, is he who is mindful of the holy commandments and is not diverted from the pursuit of duty in stormy and troublous times, and not in peace and quietness alone. In other words, Jesus didn't just do good when it was all easy. But even in the midst of his torment, 
in the midst of his agony, he was honoring his mother by seeing to her being cared for. Cyril adds another reason, perhaps, why he entrusted Mary to John in particular. He says, besides also, was not the Lord, I say, right to take thought for his mother when she had fallen on a rock of offense and when her mind was in a turmoil of perplexity? Knowing then what was passing in her heart, he commended her to the disciple, the best of guides, who was able to explain fully and adequately the profound mystery. In other words, he had been teaching John for three years. And even though the disciples would know more after the resurrection, uh, that John would be able to help comfort Mary as she was going through this time. Perhaps, certainly there would have been a little bit of that going on as well. Why did Jesus pick John? Um, John, But in any case, Jesus did. And uh, John was faithful to take Mary then to his own house and to care for her uh, as she grew older. After this then, Jesus saw that all had been accomplished and so said, I thirst. Why did he say, I thirst? To fulfill the scriptures. Well, it did fulfill the scriptures. But was he just pretending to be thirsty so that he could fulfill the scripture? No, no he was thirsty. He said he was thirsty because he was thirsty. Um, he also, though, was fulfilling scripture. And it, it, uh, John comments that, that this would fulfill the scripture, to fulfill the scripture. But Jesus did this after he knew that all was finished. Was his job done? His job was, his job was done. And now he wanted a drink. He was thirsty. He was in agony. This means he truly suffered. He was of, of like nature with us. That he was not some superman that was just taking it all in without feeling any of it. He meant what he said. Not only in normal circumstances did he get hungry and thirsty, but much more as he hung on the cross for hours and endured this suffering, he was quite thirsty. Jesus knew that was all was finished. He was doubtless parched as it was. If he was going to say anything, he needed to have a drink of something. And so he roused up his remaining strength, took a drink so that he might proclaim that all was finished. Notice in verse 28 and verse 30, he uses the same word. Knowing that all was now finished. And then in verse 30, he says, it is finished. He knew it was finished. So he wanted the drink so that he would be able to tell to everyone, it is finished. He knew it was now all finished. Uh, He knew what he was doing there on the cross. He knew why he was there. As Augustine said, a wicked people did such things. A compassionate Christ suffered them. They who did them knew not what they did, but he who suffered not only knew what was done and why it was so, but also wrought that which was good through those who were doing what was evil. He knew that a great thing was being accomplished, that the will of the Father was being worked out, that now all had been finished as he was there on the cross. And so he said, I thirst. And then even in doing that, he fulfilled scripture, as John is quick to point out, right? This harkens back, likely, to Psalm 69. Uh, Quite 
likely, I don't think it's likely, I think it, it is Psalm 69 that he was referring to, a psalm referred to several times in the New Testament, where this agonizing righteous sufferer uh, calls out, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so that would be true of Jesus as well. John had already quoted verse 9 of that psalm in chapter 2, where he had said, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Or coming back now towards the end of the book, coming back to that same song, uh, that he had fulfilled his father's will, he had been zealous for his father's house, and now he was receiving the bitter cup, the sour wine that was being handed to him. Interestingly, they use a hyssop branch to bring the sour wine to his lips. It's an interesting detail. We didn't need to know that. Hyssop had been used to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts in the first Passover. Perhaps John wants us to think about that. Now here was the lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. It's not exactly doing the same thing, spreading the blood. Uh, but here was pointing to that one who was taking upon himself the sin of the world so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Well, with that drink, now he lifts up his head and he says one more thing in verse 30. Strengthened by that sour wine, as sour as it might have been, he lifted up his head and he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I'm going to borrow again, this time not from an early church father, but to a later church father, uh, J.C. Ryle. I'm going to use his six points on what it meant for it to be finished. First of all, Jesus meant that his great work of redemption was finished. That Jesus had obtained our salvation. Of course, thinking in light of his death, he couldn't talk, though, when he was dead. So he says this right as he's dying in that moment, because that's the last thing that happens, that in his death, it was finished. A sin was atoned for. Everlasting righteousness was brought in. Our salvation was accomplished. His great work of redemption was finished. Secondly, God's determined counsel and fair foresight concerning his death was now accomplished and finished. God's plan had now come uh, to, not the end, but that it, what he had uh, foretold uh, of and, and wanted Christ to do uh, had been finished. Uh, thirdly, he had finished the work of keeping God's holy law. Uh, that him suffering death was both what we might call his passive obedience in suffering for our sins, but it was also part of his active obedience, that he was obeying his Father, that he was d obeying God even unto death, obeying the charge that he had taken upon himself as the Messiah, that as uh, Philippians 2 says, that he was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, that he had finished the work of keeping God's holy law. Fourthly, he had finished the types and figures of the ceremonial law. He had fulfilled the law, not only in keeping the moral law, but also in 
filling up all that the types and shadows of the ceremonial law had been pointing to of his atoning death, that what it would be accomplished was finished. And therefore, they were growing old and passing away, uh, that they would no longer need to sacrifice animals on the altar. Even as he says this, the, the curtain in the temple rips apart, and that no longer would that be needed. For the single offering, once offered up, had been uh, offered. Uh, fifthly, he had finished and fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, that would could be a little more debatable, because certainly there would be prophecies of the growth of the kingdom and things like that, but particularly the, the prophecies of the accomplishment of salvation uh, through the death of Christ, uh, that this had been fulfilled. And sixthly, his sufferings were finished, that his estate of humiliation, not quite finished because he would still be dead until his resurrection, but his sufferings would be finished. The, the strife, the agony, the sorrow, that burden that he had been carrying, that he had sweat dra- great drops of blood even thinking about, that was now finished. It is finished. The job is done. And he gave up his spirit. But probably of all these, most notably, and perhaps to summarize them all, the work of redemption has been accomplished. He uses the perfect tense here. Something that has been done and now leaves a resulting state. That it has been finished. So it is finished currently. That it has been accomplished at a point in time when he died, when he suffered for us. And so salvation has been obtained. He satisfied divine justice and paid the price for our redemption. As Hebrews says, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So salvation has been obtained. It is a completed work. It is now to be received as a gift by sinners who receive it by faith. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this redemption is yours. You do not need to add to it to escape condemnation. You can rest on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. So it is finished. Jesus gave up his spirit. He laid down his life. This was his choice. He had power to lay down his life. We will see, of course, that he will have power to lift it up, to raise it up again. To God be all the glory. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and for the good news of Jesus Christ, that in him we uh, can rest and be satisfied to to be confident, uh, to know that you have provided for us in him all the treasures of salvation that we need not look anywhere else. Indeed, we should not, for in him we have uh, the redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.